Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, February 10th, 2017. We're going to change up the format just a smidge today, deal with an um, important topic, bracing for the next big heresy hurricane. It's going to be hitting very soon. I want to prepare you for it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down. Stop. Open up your Bible and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And uh, what we do is we take the time to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles, apostolates, popular authors, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complexes, those whom we need to be listening to, whose books we need to be buying, whose small group curricula we need to be studying instead of the Word of God. Oftentimes, that's how that works. And over and again, uh, we demonstrate that the steady diet being fed to people uh, in the name of Jesus nowadays, like, doesn't even remotely come close to squaring with God's word. And what's really sad about this is that um, not only does it not square with God's word, it seems like the less it squares with God's word, the greater chance of it being, like, the next big thing is the best way I can put it. Now, if you remember back, Think back to a decade ago. Like, seriously. Uh, you, know, in, you know, here we are. You know, I've been broadcasting. It'll be nine years in June, and it's almost been ten. And uh, at the very beginning of Fighting for the Faith, uh, what was the book that was all the rage? Oh, it was uh, William Young's book, The Shack. And, uh, oh boy, I mean, everybody was just gobbling that thing up and saying it was the most amazing thing ever, kind of in an old Alan Alda, you know, cry in the fetal position kind of way. And uh, that book was just postmodern, is the best way I can put it. And uh, it was one of the gateway uh, books into the emergent church. Well, They've made it into a movie, and it's coming out 
in March. And uh, the uh, the group formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ, now Crew, uh, have decided that th- they're not endorsing the book. Uh, I mean the movie. No, no, they're not endorsing it. But they are giving away free tickets to college students. And they've concocted a uh, – how do I put this? A, a, a discussion guide. And uh, so what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at what Crew is up to in their uh, non-endorsement endorsement. <laughs> you know, speaking out of both sides of their mouth. Their non-endorsement endorsement of uh, the movie The Shack. Uh, and uh, we'll go back in time and we're going to listen to part of an interview that uh, William Young gave uh, when The Shack was all the rage. They had only sold 5 million copies of the book at that time. And, uh, you know, and so years ago, somebody actually, some Baptist minister uh, gave, you know, got an interview with William Young and asked some more tough theological questions. And you can begin to see (laughs) the problems immediately. And uh, so we'll just pick out a a portion of that so that you can kind of take a look at what is this fellow's theology. Uh, We'll we'll note uh, Crew's approach to dealing with this. And uh, we'll 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 take a look at a couple of passages of scripture along the way, and uh, and then uh, then we'll take a break. And I'm not sure how long the, it's going to be before we get to the break. So that's the, <laughs> this. It could be our standard first break time. It could be a little longer. It doesn't really matter. But after we come back from our first break, uh, we're going to replay a sermon that we played seven years ago. Seven. Yeah, seven years ago uh, by Albert Muller, and the name of the sermon was, Why Do They Hate It So? The Doctrine of Substitution. And uh, we're going to uh, let Dr. Muller explain to us why it is the liberals hate this thing. And uh, William Young, he is one of these guys who is uh, no lover of the biblical doctrine of penal substitution. We'll add a few good resources to go with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, and this will kind of begin the inoculation process for what's going to be another is you know theological Ebola outbreak. Yeah, the shack was the theological equip, uh, equivalent of the Ebola virus, and uh, and you know it kind of shows the the, the flat out hatred. And I mean this, hatred of sound doctrine, how it's complete, continually underplayed, impugned, shown to be not important. And what's more important? Well, it's, it's what you feel. It's, it's the emotions. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly recommend that you make yourself comfortable. And uh, since we're going to begin with a um, an emergent church update, because that's what William Young is. He is a postmodern liberal, who, and the shack is a form of theological deconstruction. It's not just some literary work. It's a, it's a work of postmodern deconstruction against uh, sound biblical doctrine. But uh, he, let's do this. These are the sounds of the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Doug Paget. And special guest today on the timpani drums is, uh, well, that's William Young. You'll notice over there on clarinet, that's uh, Rob Bell. And uh, y'all remember uh, Tony Jones and Brian McLaren? Yeah, they're they're filling in in the trumpet section. 
And uh, this is their rendition of Strauss's also Sprock Zarathustra. Very cutting edge and avant-garde postmodern approach to this particular piece of music. So listen in as they're being led by the spirit. Just brings blood to my ears every time I hear it. So, uh, you know, so here's the story, and that is, is that uh, Amy Spreeman has actually covered this over at her Berean, um, her, her Berean Examiner blog, which you can find at piratechristian.com. And uh, the headline reads: uh, "Crew, formerly that's Cam- uh, that used to be known as Campus Crusade for Christ, gives students free tickets and mixed messages about the shack M- mixed messages in the sense that um they aren't endorsing the the movie the shack they're not endorsing it but they're giving free tickets and, and see that's just so postmodern right there it's like you know what if i told you it's like listen i i i am not endorsing the shack at all but if you want free tickets we'll be happy to send them to you i mean what is what is that so this is an, a non-endorsement endorsement. And uh, so they're sending uh, you know, kids to, for free, you know, college students, to go and see the movie The Shack. And they have concocted a, literally a series of discussion questions, nine discussion questions, uh, based on, uh, on the movie The Shack. You know, so that, that you, you can engage in meaningful dialogue regarding God. And so let's take a look at these questions here. Question number one, what is the main emotion that you felt after watching this film? (laughs) What? What is the, the, what is the main emotion that you felt? And I'm going to basically note this. Okay. The theology in, the shack is a train wreck. I mean, it, it, no less than I would say, you know, anywhere from you know ten to fifteen do- doctrines that are just totally out to lunch in this. I mean, in into the heretical category, even regarding the nature of God. But crew uh, is going to—they're not endorsing, you know, the shack. But they, they, the the dis- discussion question number one is: What is the main emotion that you felt? After watching this film, uh-huh, yeah, so we're going to keep our Bibles shut. Let's see if they actually ask any questions, meaningful questions about Jesus. So we're going to judge the movie, not on its theological content, but we're going to judge it on... Feelings. Nothing more. Trying to forget my feelings of love. Teardrops, they're rolling down on my face. Trying to forget 
That's right. That's uh, late Les Dotson and uh, his rendition of feelings. So we're going to judge. Literally, we're going to engage in conversation, theological conversation, sparked by the movie The Shack. And the first question is, what is the main emotion you felt after watching this film? Uh, question number two, what surprised you most? about this film what surprised you yeah you would assume that with discussion questions like this and you know somehow they they think that this is a meaningful conversation that kids need to have as it relates to god um that somehow we'd be heading towards you know christ and him crucified for our sins the need to repent and trust in jesus so you know that so what are you feeling? What were you most surprised about? What scene in the shack, this is question number three, had the most impact on you and why? What? I mean, this is not why I go to see movies. I go to see movies to be entertained. I want to see explosions. I want to see action or, you know, things like <laughs> So what scene in the shack had the most impact on you and why? Number four, uh, is there a loss or a hurt in your life that has left you in pain? What? Where's Jesus? I mean, seriously, what is going wrong here? All right, question number five. Question number five. How did this pain or event in your life affect your attitude towards God? In what way has this hurt drawn you closer to God's presence? Or had you questioned God's love for you or his presence in your life? What is, is this some kind of therapeutic mysticism? Uh, question number six. In, in, what way, in what ways do you need to forgive yourself and others? Uh-huh. Yeah, notice question six doesn't mention anything about your need to be forgiven by Jesus. But, you know, have you experienced hurt and pain? And do you need to forgive yourself and others? How about you need to be forgiven by Christ? Yeah, see, Jesus is nowhere to be seen here. And then questions number seven. Did the message of the shack change your perspective? on events in your life, and the whys you may ask God about, uh, about around your own circumstances. 
poorly written question, but question eight, um, who would you bring the, sh- the, to the shack and why? Nobody. I would, I don't want anybody going to the shack. Um, and then the last question, I mean, I mean this, the, this is meaningful discussion about God. Apparently after seeing the shack, do you have a new perspective on God? Yeah, totally heretical one now. And even uh, when he may seem invisible, did seeing the shack build your faith? Of course, I'm going to ask the question, faith in whom for what? Um, it's This is just bizarre. Absolutely bizarre. So uh, the, the uh, crew is, they're not endorsing. You need to understand, they have not endorsed the movie at all. No. They're not endorsing it. No, 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 no. They would never do that. But they're giving away free tickets, and they're going to have nine discussion. They have nine discussion questions based upon the movie The Shack. So here is uh, Mark Stewart from Crew um, telling us about the importance of of The Shack and and uh, what what Crew is doing with The Shack and why. This is a movie that you can bring your non Christian friends to. To see a lot of humor in this thing, the interaction between the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit is so unique. It may- yeah, so unique. Um, the uh, the Father, God the Father, is a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense, does it? No, God the Father, a woman. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's funny though, but I mean, oh yeah, so you can bring your non-Christian friends. Do, if I do, you think that if I brought my non-Christian friends to she, see the shack, that they'll sit there and go, you know, I, I, whew, I, I've got to become a Christian now. How, how do, how, how do I repent and uh, and be forgiven of my sins? Let me back this up. Listen again. This is a movie that you can bring your non-Christian friends to to see. A lot of humor in this thing. The interaction between the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit is so unique, it makes you come away from the movie saying, I want to be loved like Mac was loved, like they loved him. Uh-huh. I want to be loved like Mac was loved. Huh. The weird part, though, is Mac wasn't loved in this way. Um, in yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. I'll explain that in a minute when we get to... Uh, we go back in time and check in with uh, William Young and his theology regarding the atonement. Um, you know, so uh, the, the way Mac was loved in the shack was kind of that Alan Alda psychotherapy, um, you know, kind of way. Personally, I didn't really care for the book, but when I saw this movie, I absolutely loved it because I saw God in a way that portrays him in such a way that he deeply wants to meet each person where they are. He's able to put aside the vastness of the universe and come down and speak to each individual heart. Um, that's weird. Because God put away the vastness of the universe and was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried for our sins and for our salvation. Um, so what are you talking about? Uh, the, you, again, this is t- this sounds like some kind of psychotherapeutic mysticism that you're describing and promoting. Go see this movie and then bring someone to it 
Or better yet, bring someone when you when you go see it. It's a- but they're not endorsing it. The C the C crew has made it very clear. They're not endorsing this movie. But they want you to go and bring people to see it. It's a tremendous movie. And let God speak to you and let God speak to those who have really had some serious questions about God. Uh, why would God speak to anybody through the false doctrine of this movie? Great movie. Don't miss it. Um, I, I hope I can. Now, this is Chris Randazzo of Family Life speaking uh, on the Crew Vimeo channel about the movie, The Shack. R- remember, Crew is not endorsing this movie. Uh, as someone on staff with Crew, I would not hesitate to take anyone who's considering uh, a walk with Christ to go see this movie. Because Right, yeah, but he's not endorsing it. It opens up a lot of, of uh, understanding how much God loves us and what he's done for us. Yeah, I thought God demonstrated that love for us by dying for our sins on the cross. Uh, the movie itself, the main character, Mac, um, really struggles with some real uh, deep issues of pain and, and the tragedy that he had dealt with and how he felt distant from God. And the movie helps you understand how God has always been there through that. Uh, so I would highly recommend the movie. And for those of you who are worried uh, that maybe it's not a theologically sound movie. Right, because the book was far from theologically sound. There are such minor issues that to me... Minor? Oh, so William Young, was he's repented of his false doctrine and his post-modernity and... Uh, and he's and all of the errors and heresies in the uh, the the book. He's he's repented of all of that, and and the movie now is is embracing biblical orthodoxy. I don't think so. The main message of this movie uh, is something that you definitely don't want to discount: um, the fact that God loves us, that He's always there for us. Um, that he- yeah, I know that God loves us. Christ died for our sins. Scripture describes that love of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Again, the love being described here is uh, you know, the, kind of the psychotherapeutic love of the shack in, in postmodern deconstructionist terms. I mean, you know, it's, it's just a minor issue. It's, it's not a big deal, you know, that... God the Father is portrayed as a woman. <laughs> He's just no. See, that's, that's it's, it's so minor, you know. And so you'll notice here the the theological errors are being downplayed. William Young hasn't repented of his false doctrine, like not even close. Instead, what's happened is is that they are, well, you know, oh, this is we we got to get on board with this because this is an evangelism tool. I would never use heterodoxy and heresy in order to bring somebody to Christ. That doesn't make any sense. Um, Let me read out a portion of the book of Galatians, chapter 5, where it says, uh, starting in verse 2, Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Paul, writing to the churches in Galatia, who had succumbed to the, uh, the heresy of the Judaizers, and the Judaizers were literally, literally teaching that if you're not circumcised, you're not even saved. Now, granted, I mean, circumcision is discussed and commanded in the Old Testament. Um, and so, you, you know, I mean, here you've got, you can find it in the Bible. 
And yet Paul is saying that if you accept circumcision as a Christian on the terms that these Judaizers are talking about, that uh, Christ is going to be of no advantage to you. So I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Yeah, you see, see Paul here, writing into the inspiration of the real Holy Spirit, says it's just a little leaven that leavens the whole lump. And so the fact that William Young portrays the father as a woman, I mean, there's a little bit of leaven, don't you think? The fact that he his his doctrine of the atonement and sin and hell itself, all portrayed in the book, I'm sure are going to come through in spades in the movie. These are not little things. They're big things because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And here, you know, this fellow from uh, from crew, Chris Randazzo, is literally saying, this is just minor stuff. It's just minor. You need to bring your unsaved friends so that you can have a dialogue with them about their emotions and their feelings that were stirred up by the shack. Let me back up just a little bit. Here, listen again. It's not a theologically sound movie. There are such minor issues that, to me, the main message of this movie... Yeah, to you. The minor, minor, just a little leaven, no big deal. Just a tiny bit of arsenic in the water. It's... Ignore it. It, it's, it's, it just adds a little flavor, you know. Uh, it's something that you definitely don't want to discount. Um, the fact that God loves us, that he's always there for us, um, that he's never left our side when we have hard issues that we deal with. Um, this is going to open up great conversations uh, for you to take, the people who are interested in having a relationship with Christ. Uh-huh. So, appar- uh, so apparently... Um, yeah, you know, this is going to give you that opportunity, man. This is the big soul-winning opportunity. And oh, you know, all that all that heterodoxy and heresy and it, it's just minor. It just just ignore it. Just ignore it. And of course, you keep in mind again, crew is making it clear they're not endorsing. They're not endorsing the shack. Although that sounded like an endorsement to me. Make sure to bring all of your unsaved friends, but I'm not endorsing. Yeah, this is just postmodern nonsense. Now, here's Alan Scholes. Of, uh, he's a, a, a theology professor for Crew, And watch what he does with the uh, theology of the shack. I want to tell you about a wonderful new movie called The Shack. More than any other film I've ever seen, this portrays God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit Now, it's not perfect. We should never take our theology from a movie or even a popular novel. Like It's not perfect. So there's a crew theology prof, and he's talking about, well, the shack, it portrays Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. (laughs) Okay, so not perfectly. Uh Uh-huh. Right. How how much leaven is needed to leaven the whole lump? A lot, a little. How, How much of this should we put up with here, you know?
Huh. The novel, The Shack. However, I think if you go to this movie, you will see God in a new and mostly biblical way. Wow, folks, I mean, sign me up. We're going to see God in a mostly biblical way. I mean, granted, the the part that isn't biblical is theologically suspect and problematic, but it's not and not perfect, but oh, just ignore that part. You know, you're it's this is mostly biblical. That is a direct quote from the crew theology prof who is it, not endorse. Yeah, I'm going to make this clear. C- crew is not endorsing the shack. <laughs> this is not an endorsement, but it, it's, <laughs> it's it's mostly biblical. Okay. Uh-huh. All the shack. However, I think if you go to this movie, you will see God in a new and mostly biblical way. Right. New and mostly biblical. Uh-huh. Don't you think the ways I should be seeing God are drawn directly from Scripture using sound doctrine, sound exegesis, and a correct understanding of what God has revealed about himself? Why would I need to have a new way of viewing God that's different than what his word reveals about him? Hmm? You know, well, the shack is mostly biblical, you know. I do have one little quibble about the theology of the book, and then I'll tell you some of the really wonderful things about it. Okay, so what's your quibble? Um, in one scene, a couple of scenes actually, it shows the character playing God the Father and the character playing God the Holy Spirit with nail prints in their hands, well, in their wrist actually. Yeah, that's right, because William Young actually believes that God the Father and the Spirit, the whole Trinity, suffered on the cross, which is patently False theology. That's not something to quibble with. That is a that is that is an error that crosses the line into heresy. Um, implying, as the book did, that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit died on the cross with Jesus. Right, and we're going to hear William Young in a minute when we go back in time actually explain that theology to us. That's not really biblical. <laughs> no, it's heretical. And so why are you endorsing a bo- a movie based on a book that's teaching heresy? The uniqueness of Jesus, uh, the eternal son, was that he is the only member of the Trinity who became human and who died for us. Yeah, that's true, what you just said. But William Young denies that. He's not somebody who is just in, in error. He's an actual heretic. However, a lot of the rest of the portrayal and the rest of the movie has some very sound theology in it. <laughs> I'm sure it does. <laughs> but they're not endorsing it. I just want to make that clear. Um, so... Let me see if I got this straight, you know. So we just need to kind of hold our noses regarding the heretical part um, and understand that the the rest of the movie has got some really solid stuff in it. Oh, that we just need to uh, celebrate and embrace. Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Right. 
I especially like the relationship between the three members of the Trinity. They laugh, they enjoy being together, uh, and the main character, who has some real problems with God because of things that have happened to him in the past, uh, is just drawn to this relationship between the members of the Trinity, and he wants to be a part of it. And I think that that's something that you'll experience I hope you'll bring your family. I hope you'll bring your... Why would I bring my family to have them emotionally impacted by a book that clearly is teaching heresy regarding the nature of God and and how Christ suffered uniquely for our sins? And especially, I hope you'll bring any non-believers you know, because I think... No, I would never do that. Why would... I want to evangelize my neighbors and friends with a movie that I'm going to have to say, listen, that whole thing about, you know, the Father and the Holy Spirit suffering uh, on the cross with Jesus, that's actually heresy. Uh, But, hey, listen, you know, but God wants to have a relationship with you, man. This, This doesn't make any sense. They will see God in a new way. And in fact, you can have a wonderful conversation with them afterwards. Go out and have something to eat and say, have you ever thought of God the way he's portrayed in this movie? I'll bet most of them will say no. And then say, how did, how did you think about God before you saw this movie? Uh, I'm just going to beat my head against a brick wall, man. Um, and then you can talk about how God is portrayed in the Bible as loving uh, as three persons. The- yeah, how about bled and died for our sins, demonstrates his love for us by dying on the cross for our sins while we're enemies of God. Of course, the classic view of the Trinity is uh, there is one God in three distinct persons. Yeah, that's the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And this is portrayed fairly well in the movie with the... Ex- <laughs> Fairly well. It's 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 well accurate ish when it comes to the Trinity. Of the nail prints. I hope you go see it, and I hope you bring some non-believers. No, I would never use a heretical movie to evangelize anybody with. What is going on? This is just patently absurd. Now, we're going to uh, fire up the, uh, the Fighting for the Faith DeLorean, and we're going to go back in time, and we're going to listen to an interview done on KAYP back in the day with uh, William Young. But let's, let's do this right. There we go. All right. So we're firing up the DeLorean. There's the flux capacitor. Let's uh, change the time circuits. we got to go to March 2000. And nine, there we go. That one, the first one, let's get these time circuits correct here. And one more coordinate here. Perfect. Okay, so we're going to March 2009 to Burlington, Iowa, K-A-Y-P radio station. And uh, on that date, back in March 2009... Kendall Adams of Burlington Baptist Church of Burlington, Iowa, scored an an interview with William Young to talk about the theology in the shack. So uh, let's, uh, we got the time circuits working, the flux capacitor is fluxing, let's head back, here we go. (laughs) 
but rough, but okay, let me, there we go. All right. So here we are, 2009, March, in Burlington, Iowa, and uh, we're going to be listening in on a conversation had on the KAYP radio station back in that time with uh, William Young and Kendall Adams, like I've already said. Here's part of their conversation as they were discussing, well, the doctrine of sin and Christ's atonement. Here we go. I guess the question I've had as I read it is, if we do represent God and we put words in God's mouth, you know, that God says this, and that people are reading Scripture and they're like, for instance, here's a question on page 120 where God says, you know, I don't, I don't punish sin. Sin is its own punishment. You know, this is when Mac um, is having a hard time with his view of God, pouring out wrath, etc. But then when it says, Mackenzie, I don't need to punish people for sin. I guess when people read the scripture, my question is, doesn't God, hasn't God, and doesn't he punish sin? Some of it is semantic. We're dealing with the uh, concept of the wrath of God. And here's an underlying question. Do you believe that God does anything that is not motivated by love? Well, I think in Scripture we have wrath, we have justice, we have mercy, we do have but love. Do you so, believe that God does anything that is not motivated by love? Because love is his ontological character, it's his being. Justice is an activity of God. Uh, wrath is an activity of God. So you do believe, so, though, that he does punish sin? I I believe in the wrath of God, absolutely. But, but the wrath of God is, is always couched. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It's not against the men. It's against everything that is damaging them, hurting them, causing them to sin against each other, everything that is contrary to his nature. Uh, yeah, then why do people go to hell? <laughs> Notice what he's doing here. Apparently God's wrath is on the things that are hurting us. But we no human being suffers God's wrath in you know, William Young's theology. And uh, but so... I, I absolutely believe in the wrath of God. Yes, I believe it's motivated by love. But this love also, in justice, you quoted, you know, you mentioned uh, the lake of fire, etc. It does say that there is torment day and night, so there is punishment. Torment. Yeah, and it, and it is in the presence of the Lamb. Well, here's my question. So if God yeah. doesn't punish sin, what is the cross then? Because if Jesus took our punishment on the cross, if he died... For our sins, he was taking our punishment. If God doesn't punish sin, it seems like that demeans the whole concept of the cross. Oh, not at all. The, the cross is, is the plan of God from before the foundation of the world to, to redeem us back from being lost, being in the grip of our sin and lostness and idolatry and everything else. It's absolutely central. There's no hope for any human being, let alone a human race, apart from the cross. Yeah, but what did Jesus do on the cross? What was he doing? So you do believe that Christ was punished then for our sin? I believe that that Christ became sin for us. I mean that he, he was a sacrifice, that he p was punished. He took punished our, by who? The Father. Why, why would the Father punish his son? Huh. Yeah, it's kind of weird there. Um, 
you know, I, I would think of something like Isaiah 53. And I've recently written on the, uh, the doctrine of penal substitution. There will be some resources available with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith that you can go a little bit deeper with. Here's what it says in Isaiah 53. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement, you can even say punishment that brought us peace, uh, was upon him. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we got some major problems here in this theology that William Young is spinning out. And notice he's he's not answering he he he's not answering biblically. He's twisting and manipulating God's word and flat out denying what scripture is saying in this regard. Because sin demanded justice. It it demanded oh, it, but it but where was father when the son was on the cross? In your book when it says, um, Mac had a problem with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God basically says, Mac, I never left him. That's right. When Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? It he's, Yeah, he's quoting, he's also quoting and doing the cry of David in the Psalms. And in the Psalms, that's totally reconciled within the Psalms. And the next thing that he says even though that's exactly what he feels for the first time as a human being who is born of the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, for the first time he doesn't sense the presence of the Father, and in that he cries out. But Paul the Apostle comes up later, and Jesus first says, but into your hands I commit my Spirit. So he's still saying, you're here. And Paul says, where was God the Father? For God the Father, 2 Corinthians 5.19, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Oh. Wow, is that bad? <sighs> yeah, um, he's overcooked his theology. This is where he basically is saying that all the members of the Trinity suffered with Christ on the cross. Yet only God the Son is incarnate. Second Corinthians 5, I'll start verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Second uh, Corinthians 5, uh, 18 and 19 does not say God the Father was in Christ. It said God was in Christ. This is referring to the incarnation itself. And so, I mean, th these are just some of the examples, and I mean this, some of the examples of the blatant false doctrine on the part of, uh, of William Young. This man's theology is corrupt through and through, and he is not a solid Bible teacher, and his theology pours through the pages of the, of the book, The Shack, 
And it's already clear from the crew theologian who's not endorsing the movie at all that uh, William Young's false doctrine, and it's flat-out heresy, is pouring through the celluloid of uh, uh, of the movie The Shack. The, the, you get the idea here. So, um, so the idea then is is that how do you protect yourself and your family? Because here's the deal: this is not this is not him just taking literary license in trying to help us understand sound doctrine and what the Bible teaches and reveals regarding the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and their love for us. That's not it at at all. Um, The literary license that William Young takes in the book is designed to flesh out his theology. And he is postmodern. He has a corrupt understanding of sin, of Christ's suffering on the cross. And it's just just rampant through and through. So the idea here is that some people will say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, he's just taking literary license like C.S. Lewis. This is Christian allegory. No, the problem is, is that William Young straight up is a heretic. And his theology is corrupt through and through. And this is just an artistic expression, a literary expression of his very, very dangerous false doctrine. I think you get the idea. So what we're going to do, we're going to take a break, and when we come back from the break, we're going to go right into our sermon review. And uh, we're going to listen to a sermon delivered by Albert Muller many years ago. And uh, the name of the sermon is, uh, Why Do They Hate It So? The Doctrine of Substitution. And we played this seven years ago on Fighting for the Faith, but I think it bears repeating uh, due to the uh, <laughs> the need to prepare you all for what is coming in the you know the uh, Ebola outbreak that is the shack you know Ebola bo- outbreak number two uh, if you would so uh, let's go go to our break if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end off with a good lecture slash sermon on the doctrine of penal substitution. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... (laughs) You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We here at Pirate Christian Radio understand the importance of outreach ministries and what they can provide for the people they serve. We've recently discovered a small charity organization called Kenyan Christian Arts. This group has come together to craft and sell unique handmade Christian art locally and around the world to provide the funds necessary to feed, medicate, and educate orphan children in Kenya. Additionally, a portion of the proceeds from every purchase is donated to the FredEx International Foundation to help the poor and orphaned children all over Western Kenya. 
please visit KenyanChristianArts.com and take a look at their selection of hand-carved soapstone goods. Their selection includes a variety of pieces such as crosses, vases, nativity sets, and even mugs. Remember, that's KenyanChristianArts.com. Thank you. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. All right, we're back. Technically, this isn't our number two. We're just going to end the week off with a good sermon that kind of give you a biblical underpinning in order to contradict the false atonement, false doctrine of the shack. There's so many of them, though. We're going to stick with some of the core ones. Today, we're going to focus in on Christ dying for our sins. Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon slash lecture comes to us from the Together for the Gospel archives. A uh, sermon lecture, de- well, delivered by Albert Moeller years ago, years ago. Why do they hate it so? The doctrine of substitution. And... Uh, this is worth its weight in gold, and as far as I'm concerned, it's a great, fantastic look at the doctrine of the atonement. And like I said, today's uh, additional resources, visit fightingforthefaith.com, look for today's episode, uh, you know, the uh, fr- Friday, February 10th, 2017, and you'll see additional resources uh, to links on rightly understanding the atonement itself, a paper I've written uh, some issues, etc. archive programs that I think will be helpful. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And here's Albert Moeller. Why do they hate it so? The doctrine of substitution. Here we go. 
Thank you, Mark. I hope you sense that a part of what we really exult in together in this is the opportunity for us to be together. And a part of our hope for you is that you will develop lifelong friendships of those who share the same calling because that is one of God's richest gifts to those who carry the responsibility of preaching and teaching the Word of God. It is to have friends who have the same calling and are fueled by the same passions and are excited by the same convictions and are burdened by the same concerns. And so a part of what we hope to do through this movement is to share a friendship with you. It is good to be in the presence of 5,000 of our closest friends in that light because your presence here says something very significant. The title of this conference is Together for the Gospel. That clearly comes with implications in terms of why we would choose such a name. It means, first of all, that we are together. That's always good, but there are a lot of groups that are together that are together for all the wrong reasons. And frankly, there are people who love the gospel who, well, they aren't together. We wanted to be together for the gospel. This means that the gospel is the overriding concern of all other concerns that would bring us to this place. It means that we want the gospel to be what draws us here, and it means we want the gospel to be what sends us out, a passion for the gospel, to see the name of Christ famous among the nations, to see sinners rest in Christ and trust in Him. We did not conspire in, in terms of exactly what each of us would speak about. A part of the fact that we respect each other's friendship is we basically say, come and do what you want to do, which is a good thing because that's what we would do anyway. <laughs> but when you look at how this conference has proceeded, it's very clear that there is a progression that has been building. It would have been worth the trip here just to have heard any one of the messages heretofore. But I found myself just in exaltation over the display of the gospel this afternoon from Dr. Sproul. And thus, as he gave us such a marvelous demonstration and exposition of the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ, I want to ask you, who would not thirst and hunger for that? Reflecting on Acts chapter 16, verse 26 Charles Wesley read the text, and suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And as he was so often led to do, it led him to write a hymn. It's a hymn we love, a, a hymn we sing, a, a hymn that we will soon sing as we find reason to rejoice in the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1739, Charles Wesley wrote these words, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be? that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite is grace, 
emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free. For, oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus, and all in him, is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne, and claim the crown through Christ my own. That one hymn is like a short, poetic, lyrical exercise in systematic theology. It's also a word of testimony. It is a narrative that contains propositional truth. The truth of the gospel is proclaimed, but it's not an abstract truth. Those who sing this song sing in the first person singular. I pursued him to death. How can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? It's hard for us to imagine this, but it is necessary for us to recognize that there are those who hate the words, the images, and the truth claims that are contained within that hymn. Some of you know that the seminary I lead has been through a process of a complete transformation that was made necessary because of a theological crisis. Thus, we as an institution and the churches to whom we belong must sing a song very similar to this as by God's grace and mercy an institution was recovered. I'm often asked why it was necessary. And my answer to that is necessarily autobiographical, for I was a student at the seminary, and that's how I learned where the problem was and its magnitude. On the very first day of my studies, in the very first class, in the very first hour, the professor, having introduced the syllabus for the class, then asked every member of the class in turn to identify by name and by home state, and to state the reason why we were taking this class in New Testament studies. As the line wound around chair to chair, desk to desk, it finally came to a young woman who was there to study to be a missionary in the foreign fields, the international fields of service. She mentioned her name. She mentioned her home state. And when it Answering the question why she was taking this class in New Testament studies, she said she was taking it because she wanted to know more about Jesus Christ and his shed blood. The professor exploded. I was unprepared for this. The class was unprepared for this. He said there will be no more bloody cross religion in this classroom. Is this understood? He said, that is not tolerated. He said, it is beneath 
dignity and self-respect to believe in a God who had to kill in order to forgive. Our seminary was established in 1859. The very first commencement, a hymn was written, which is our seminary hymn has been sung at every commencement since then. It's entitled, Soldiers of Christ in Truth Arrayed. It's a wonderful hymn. The first line goes like this. Soldiers of Christ in truth arrayed, a world in ruins needs your aid. A world by sin destroyed and dead, a world for which the Savior bled. Or at least that's how the hymn's first stanza read until the mid-1970s when the word bled was changed to died. A world by sin destroyed and dead, a world for which the Savior died. Soon after I became president, the hymn was changed again. And the Southern Baptist Convention was at that time printing a new hymnal, and they included this hymn, and they changed it from died back to bled. A faculty member of the old regime came up to me and was quite pleased with this. I was surprised that he was pleased, but I was pleased that he was pleased. (laughs) And as he was speaking to me about why he was pleased, well, all my pleasure fell away. Because this is what he said. He said, you know, he said, I'm so glad they changed that. He said, I know you're glad they changed that. He said, it was such awful poetry. (laughs) Well, the Lord does move in mysterious ways. (laughs) The resistance to any reference to the blood of Christ, any reference to the wrath of God, any reference to a penal substitutionary atonement, this is something that is all around us. And it is not new. Of course it isn't new. But I want to note that when we ask the question, why do they hate it so, the focus of my concern tonight is not why the unregenerate hate it so. It's why would some who would at least claim to be Christian hate it so. The controversy is not new. Of course, it goes back to controversy over the atonement, as we shall see in centuries past. But it is interesting to note that there are certain milestones in our more recent years of controversy. On May the 21st, 1922, Harry Emerson Fosdick, then pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of New York City, rose to deliver the most famous sermon of his entire career. The sermon was entitled, Shall the Fundamentalist Win?, And well into that sermon, he complains about the fact that the fundamentalists want to define Christianity in terms of certain definite doctrines and doctrinal boundaries, which he, as a self-conscious liberal, wanted to reject. Interestingly enough, by the way, he wanted to claim the name, the title, evangelical. He said this, it's interesting to note where the fundamentalists are driving in their stakes to mark out the deadline of doctrine around the church, across which no one is to pass except on terms of agreement. They insist that we must all believe in the historicity of certain special miracles, preeminently the virgin birth of our Lord, that we must believe in a special theory of inspiration, that the original documents of the Scripture, 
which of course we no longer possess, were inerrantly dictated to men a good deal as a man might dictate to a stenographer. That we must believe in a special theory of the atonement, that the blood of our Lord shed in a substitutionary death placates an alienated deity and makes possible welcome for the returning sinner. He goes on. But it is interesting to note that back in 1922 at least, it was well understood that the doctrine was opposed not within any movement that would be legitimately described or defined as evangelical, but without. And as a matter of fact, those who were without would complain that those who were within were making this doctrine of substitutionary atonement a dividing line. In more recent years, it has also been this way. As recently, though, as 19, in the 1970s, J.I. Packer, writing the essay Dr. Dever mentioned on the logic of penal substitution, could describe the penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement as, and I quote, a distinguishing mark of the worldwide evangelical fraternity. He wrote that with confidence. Later, in another essay you will find in this book presented to you tonight, you will find that he says for the entirety of his ministry, the issue of substitutionary atonement has been of controversy, but it's clear within the context of that statement, he meant in the larger theological world. But now it has come to be far closer. The antipathy to the idea of a penal substitutionary atonement is sometimes presented in such blatant form it's impossible not to get the point. In November of 1993, a conference was held in Minneapolis entitled Reimagining God. At that conference, Professor Dolores S. Williams of Union Theological Seminary in New York City said, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. End quote. This same Dolores Williams has made a focus of the doctrine of atonement and the fact that there need be no doctrine of atonement. She clearly believes in no God who is holy and just to require a penalty for sin. Furthermore, she doesn't believe in sin in the categories that are even remotely biblical. She says that forgiveness does not come through blood sacrifice but through compassion and solidarity. At another conference shortly after the one in Minneapolis, she asked this question, how do we stay in relationship with those who still find meaning in the blood? We look at all of this and try to put it together. It is important for us to put this in the framework of the larger project of theology, an understanding of the work of Christ, its meaning, and the means of its appropriation. It's important for us to understand that when we're thinking about theologies of the atonement, we are thinking generally in terms of two great categories, the objective and subjective. The objective understandings of the atonement are centered in the fact that what must change is God's disposition towards sinners. Something objective must take place, a change in how God looks to humanity, those who are covered by the blood of Christ. Subjective understandings of the atonement hold that the key issue is the sinner's disposition toward God. That what must change is something internal to the sinner. The sinner must change his, must change her understanding of God in order to be more accepting of the God who would send or who would allow Christ to die upon the cross. 
in one sense, we need to recognize that there is a false dichotomy between the objective and the subjective in a wholesome biblical frame of biblical theology, which is to say, if you believe in an objective atonement of necessity, you will also believe in its subjective appropriation and the experience of the one who comes to faith in Christ. But we will come to the understanding that there can be nothing meaningful in terms of anything subjective if it is not first grounded in the prior objective reality of the atonement achieved by Christ. In the 11th century, Anselm wrote, Cur Deus Homo, why did God become man? Why the incarnation? He did argue for an objective understanding of the atonement, but not quite for substitution. But it was substitutionary enough that Abelard, Peter Abelard, the century later, would repudiate even that understanding based upon the recovery of God's honor by presenting a moral influence theory of the atonement in the 12th century. Abelard argued that there could be nothing in the atonement that would bring about a change in God, that it must be entirely one that was directed at the human and at the human understanding of God. Let's get this straight. We're either singing the truth or a lie. This either is the gospel or it is not. The dividing line is abundantly clear. We either believe that the sum and substance of the gospel is that a holy and righteous God who must demand a full penalty for our sin both demands the penalty and provides the penalty through His own self-substitution in Jesus Christ the Son, whose perfect obedience and perfectly accomplished atonement has purchased for us all that is necessary for our salvation, has met the full demands of the righteousness and justice of God against our sin. We either believe that or we do not. If we do not, then we believe that the gospel can be nothing more than some kind of message intended to reach some emotive level in the human being so that the human being would think better of God and might want to associate with Him. Or we would transform all of these categories from the theological into the merely therapeutic and argue that the whole point of the atonement is that we would come to terms with our own problems and come to understand that there are resources for the repair of our troubled souls beyond which we previously knew. Or we would make of the atonement the merely political, that it is to send some kind of signal both to God's people as they would define themselves into the larger world. It is important that we understand that the central thrust of the Scripture, though, is undeniable. That is one of the great accomplishments of the work that has been done in this field, some of which we will review. One of the most crucial of these works you were given, the Pierce for Our Transgressions book, if you will deal with it, if you will read it, if you will honestly reflect upon it, if you will work through the biblical text, it will become a matter of unrefutable truth that the central thrust of the Scriptures concerning the atonement is that God demanded a punishment for sin and requires it by His own holiness and justice, and that He provided it in Jesus Christ, who died on our behalf, paying in full the penalty for our sin, not only associating Himself with our sin, but becoming sin for us in order that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We come to understand that not only is this a central thrust of the Scriptures, 
the gospel as defined and presented in the scriptures is reaffirmed and preached in the Reformation and in the tradition that became known as the evangelical tradition and the evangelical movement, we come to understand that the atonement for sin is first objectively accomplished for those who come to faith in Christ through the perfect sacrifice of Christ and the full satisfaction of God's righteousness. We understand that this atonement is subjectively experienced by the believer through redemption and through union with Christ. We understand that this atonement is divinely applied by the Holy Spirit who convicts the soul of sin, opens and quickens the eyes and the soul to see and to believe, and then sets his seal upon the believer. There is a growing antipathy and resistance toward the idea that there's any objective dimension, any objective understanding of the atonement that is necessary or even that is fitting. And we need to note that this controversy is now no longer in a distant neighborhood, it is in our neighborhood. J.I. Packer suggests that there are three main accounts of Christ's death and its meaning. We might call these three general groupings of theories of atonement. If we were to try to exhaust all the different metaphors and models of atonement, not only in the Scripture but in the history of, of even a more classically orthodox Christian theology, it would be far beyond the limitations of our time, not only in this hour but in these days. But it is important to see that there are at least three clusters of understandings that have been presented throughout the history of the church. The first, Packer suggests, is that the cross has its effect entirely on humanity. The second is that the cross has its effect primarily on hostile spiritual forces. And the third, that the cross has its effect first in God who propitiated himself and found full satisfaction in the atonement of Christ. Now, as Packer suggests, the third includes dimensions of one and two. In other words, not that it was entirely to have an effect on humanity, but that it does of necessity because of the fact that the atonement accomplished means that persons actually do come to faith in Christ. It does have a necessary human dimension. We also, it does include the fact that the atonement accomplished by Christ does indeed free us and declare the victory from hostile spiritual powers. But even as the penal substitutionary view of the, of the atonement can include elements from the other groupings, the other groupings have primarily been originated in an effort to deny a penal substitutionary, even at times an objective understanding of the atonement. In Mark Dever's article originally published in Christianity Today, found also in the book you find in your chair, he suggests that the models of the atonement and I think he's very helpful here, refer to three different sets of, of questions or three different problems. The, the first problem is the assumption that humanity's great problem is that we are trapped and opposed by spiritual forces beyond our control. Is that true? Of course it's true. Is that the central thrust of the atonement? No. There are those who believe that the central problem is the subjective need of humanity to know God's love for us. Is that a legitimate need? Is that a true need? Is it accurate? Of course it is. Is that the central thrust of the atonement? Of course it's not. The third assumes that the main problem is God's righteous wrath against us for our sinfulness 
which puts us in danger of eternal punishment. Interestingly, I want to cite for you, as we talk about the penal substitutionary view of the atonement, I want to use a definition that is strategically chosen. This definition is from I. Howard Marshall. The definition came in the midst of controversy, as we shall see, within the Evangelical Alliance in Great Britain. Dr. Marshall suggests very helpfully that the penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement comprises two thoughts. First of all, humankind is condemned to eternal death as the penalty imposed by God upon human sin. No matter how much or how little we may have sinned, there is a fixed penalty for all sinners, namely eternal death, of which physical death is both a part and a symbol. Hence arises the theological term penal. Secondly, Dr. Marshall says, the death of Christ on the cross was not merely a physical death, but also the eternal death due to sinners, suffered on this occasion by one who was sinless, and therefore not because of his own sins, but because of his voluntary bearing of the death that was due to other people because of their sins. His death was thus instead of their death, and consequently those who accept him as their Savior are freed from the penalty of their sins. He has died instead of them, and hence arises the use of the theological term substitution. True, they still die physically unless they survive to the second coming and are transformed as a living people rather than raised from the dead. But they do not die eternally because Christ has died instead of them and God will not require a penalty twice, as it were. Now, the reason why I chose that definition is not because I find it the most satisfactory or comprehensive. The reason I chose that definition quite strategically is to indicate, because I, Howard Marshall, is not from a Reformed tradition that the doctrine of substitution is at least well understood as a part of the central evangelical tradition. It has been of importance to those who would classify themselves as those who are the people of the cross. I do believe that the way he divides the question between penal and substitutionary is helpful, but we must always realize that as presented in Scripture, it is both penal and substitutionary. Efforts to divide the two as if it can be penal without being substitutionary or substitutionary without being penal make no sense. The rejection of a penal or substitutionary understanding of the atonement goes well back in terms of the history of the church, but most specifically I want to focus on the Reformation era where Faustus Paolo Sozzini, known as Socinus, 16th century, opposed any understanding of the atonement that had any operation whatsoever upon God. The atonement, he said, must operate on humanity alone. When you look at Socinus, we need to understand that he becomes a model for our understanding of the larger problem, and that is that the repudiation of a penal substitutionary view of the atonement is virtually never alone. It has systematic ramifications. The denial of a substitutionary understanding of the atonement, the denial of God's righteousness and His justice, the, the denial of a penal requirement in terms of God's response to sin because of His justice and righteousness, all of this has a series of ramifications throughout the entire system of theology, and rarely is that made more clear than with Socinus, who was a heretic on more than one count. Interestingly, debate over the substitutionary character of the atonement certainly emerged in English-speaking theology on both sides of the Atlantic in the 19th century and then into the 20th century. In the United States, figures such as Horace Bushnell argued against any kind of objective understanding of the atonement. 
in a way that, that foresaw the coming of a classically liberal theology in the United States. He argued that it was a human-centered, horizontal theology that had to do with the fact that we were to learn from the self-sacrifice of Christ the nature of true love. James McLeod Campbell, Charles Finney, Vincent Taylor, and a series of others on both sides of the Atlantic were engaged in intentional revisionism and an effort to reformulate a doctrine of atonement that would take away the scandal of substitution would accomplish what others have sought to accomplish, and that is the removal of any bloody cross religion. Our discussion must look at 1936 when C.H. Dodd, British New Testament scholar, wrote a book entitled The Apostolic Preaching and Its Developments. And crucially in this book, C.H. Dodd sought to further this argument, especially on lexical grounds, seeking to argue that the word propitiation had no place in the New Testament, even in terms of translation. He was very influential in some translations of the Scripture, in particular the New English Bible and that tradition of, of Bible translations which do not even include the word propitiation. I cannot summarize his argument here other than to say straightforwardly that his effort was to remove the scandal of any penal substitutionary understanding of the cross by redefining the work of Christ so that it was merely an expiation. Again, Dr. Sproul gave a wonderful explanation of this fact. Leon Morris came along in 1955, published his doctoral dissertation done at Cambridge University. His book was entitled The Apostolic Preaching of the Cross. He was later warden at Tyndale House and principal at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. He probably did more than any single evangelical in the midpoint of the 20th century to reset the discussion, and he did so in two ways. The first way was to go directly at the errors of C.H. Dodd's work in terms of the language and the grammar of the New Testament. He demonstrated that it was incredibly dishonest, although he used typical British reserve. He would not have actually used that word, but if you read the footnotes, that's what he's saying. He accused C.H. Dodd of borrowing some ideas and basically inventing others in order to argue that the words cannot mean what they appear to mean. The Leon Morris also came back and made an interesting argument as he argued that propitiation presumes and includes expiation so that it is not an either-or. The reality is not only did Christ become the penalty for us, as we know from the Scripture, he became the curse. He also, of course, satisfied by taking our sins away. In 1973, Dr. Packer wrote his essay, What Did the Cross Achieve? The Logic of Penal Substitution. It was presented as a Tyndall lecture. It was presented in such a way that it was a call because, as Dr. Packer later reflected, he detected that even among some who would call themselves evangelicals, there was an uneasiness. There was a sense, perhaps, of, of theological and dogmatic and biblical insecurity about the doctrine. And thus, he wrote one of the clearest expositions, certainly found in the evangelical tradition, of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. From the 1970s on, it became clear that Dr. Packer's concern was well-grounded Revisionist evangelicals throughout the 1980s certainly sought to revise the entire model and project of evangelical theology, but in so doing, they wanted to bring evangelical theology into a trajectory that would be free from so many of the scandals associated with the truth claims 
that it identified evangelicals in times past. The substitutionary atonement was one of these most clearly. We fast forward to 1994 when Clark Pinnock and Robert Brow wrote a book entitled Unbounded Love, the subtitle A Good News Theology for the 21st Century. Published by InterVarsity Press, this book very clearly took as its aim to redefine the entire project of evangelical theology, insinuating that the classic model of evangelical theology, which included doctrines such as the inerrancy of Scripture and substitutionary atonement, was, in their words, a bad news theology. What was needed was a good news theology, and the only way to turn a bad news theology into a good news theology was, well, they called it a new reformation that was needed in order to completely redefine the doctrine. We will hear from them again soon. But they did say this in 1994. They said, we have to overcome the rational theory of the atonement based in Latin judicial categories that has dominated Western theology. They went on and said, we must realize that Jesus did not die in order to change God's attitude towards us but to change our attitude to God. The same publisher, InterVarsity Press, had published in 1986 John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. In that book, Dr. Stott, just eight years previous, had written this, We strongly reject, therefore, every explanation of the death of Christ which does not have at its center the principle of satisfaction through substitution. In, indeed, he, he said divine self-satisfaction through self-substitution. The same publisher, InterVarsity Press, six years after publishing Pinnock and Brow, published a book by Joel Green and Mark Baker entitled Recovering the Scandal of the Cross. In that book, they argue in early chapters that their effort is to encourage evangelicals to supplement a penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement with other models. By the time you get to the center of the book, it is clear they do not want to supplement the doctrine of substitution, but to replace it. The language is unmistakable. In 2003, just three years after the publication of Recovering the Scandal of the Cross by Green and Baker, The Lost Message of Jesus was published in Great Britain by Steve Chalk and Alan Mann. The book was endorsed by figures such as N.T. Wright and Brian McLaren. In this, the authors argued that the cross is not, they said, a form of cosmic child abuse, a terminology they associated in their description of the substitutionary atonement. Some early reviewers of the book tried to indicate that in using this language, Chalk and Mann were not saying that they believed that the substitutionary atonement was indeed a form of divine child abuse. But through subsequent clarifications, the authors have made clear that that is indeed what they meant. A controversy ensued within the Evangelical Alliance in Great Britain. In 1970, the Evangelical Alliance had adopted a basis of faith which included this. It said, the substitutionary sacrifice of the incarnate Son of God as the sole all-sufficient ground of redemption from the guilt and power of sin and from its eternal consequences, end quote, was a necessary part of their confessional basis. Obviously, even as some of the authors of these books, in particular Steve Chalk, was a member of the Evangelical Alliance that's called into question the membership standards of the organization. It led to an extensive controversy. Interestingly, if you followed this, you would be aware that there were two schools historically identified with the training of evangelical pastors there in Great Britain who became centers of opposing views in terms of the acceptability 
of the denial of substitution. Oak Hill College became the great center for defending substitution. That's why the authors of Pierce for Our Transgression are associated with that school, just so you can keep all of this in terms of your own intellectual order of how all of this lays out. In July of 2005, a symposium was held in London, known not coincidentally as the London Symposium on the Theology of the Atonement. It was sponsored by the London School of Theology, and at that particular symposium, there was an open airing of all of these views. That symposium, by the way, is now available in printed form and is also good matter for your reading in order to understand what is at stake in this particular controversy. The Evangelical Alliance in 2005 then modified its statement of faith to affirm the atonement as this, the atoning sacrifice of Christ on the cross, dying in our place, paying the price of sin and defeating evil, so reconciling us with God. Now, let's just notice very easily what took place here. The controversy was occasioned most pointedly by those who claimed to be evangelical and had even signed the doctrinal basis of the Evangelical Alliance, but they did not want to refer to the substitutionary death of Christ. No, it was more than that. It's just that, not that they just did not want to refer to it. They openly opposed it and indeed published a work in which they characterized it as a form of divine child abuse. At the end of this process in the Evangelical Alliance, the Alliance by its own reporting, by the way, indicated the vast majority, over 90% of its members, affirmed a substitutionary understanding of the atonement. Nevertheless, they changed the language in their confessional basis to imply substitution rather than to use the word. I wish I could provide more detail and commentary there, but suffice it to say, when you move your confession of faith to be less clear about what you mean to say, you invite not only less clarity, but a continued process of what Charles Spurgeon would call the downgrade of the confession. Concerned about this and determined to defend a penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement not only as acceptable but as central, Steve Jeffrey, Mike Ovey, and his colleague here wrote the book Pierce for Our Transgressions, Recovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This is what they wrote. The colleague of penal substitution states that God gave himself in the person of the Son to suffer instead of us the death, punishment, and curse due to fallen humanity, humanity as penalty for sin. This understanding of the cross of Christ stands at the very heart of the gospel. Now, when we fast forward to the present hour, we understand that this controversy is not over. Nor is this controversy isolated to Great Britain. Nor is it even limited to English-speaking theology. It's a controversy that is rampant across the Christian world. But most importantly, we notice that it is a controversy that is more concentrated among those who believe that the entire project of evangelical theology must be revised, especially those who now claim that in a postmodern worldview, we must, in a postmodern age, we must transform the gospel into something more fitting for postmodern categories. In particular, you see now the substitutionary atonement being denied and subverted by many of those associated with the emerging church. For documentation on that, let me suggest that you look especially to D.A. Carson's book, Becoming Conversant with the Emerging Church, where he documents this and provides footnotes that you can easily follow. There are four major categories of objection to the substitutionary atonement, and if you look at the Pierce for Our Transgression book, you'll find that what they do is to take isolated statements that 
indicate criticisms or complaints about substitution or claims about its, its lack of biblical or theological substance or validity, and they go at each one of them. I want to categorize them in terms of four large groupings of objections to substitutionary atonement. The first is biblical, the second is theological, the third is moral, and the fourth is cultural. These are arbitrary, which is to say that there are few arguments, if any, that could be theological without being moral or vice versa, but nonetheless, some kind of typology is necessary for our understanding here. Those who object on biblical grounds suggest, first of all, that we have misunderstood the Scripture in whole or in part. In particular, they argue that we are wrong in arguing for a substitutionary atonement because we have the whole Bible storyline wrong. In other words, you have to go all the way back to the fall and argue all the way forward to the cross and then to God's acts subsequent to the cross in order to understand that a penal substitutionary view misconstrues the Bible storyline. And here's how they believe it has been misconstrued. Some will argue that it is a misconstrual of sin, that sin is not first and foremost an offense against God's righteousness and holiness, but rather it is entry into complicity with the powers of darkness. It is a self-induced exile on the part of the human creature. In getting the Bible storyline wrong, they argue that we misconstrue the nature and character of God. More about that under the theological category. But in particular, they argue that we misread the Bible text having to do with wrath. Their argument is that wherever wrath is referenced in Scripture, it is a natural consequence of sin. Sin brings about its own punishment. This is a theme that comes again and again and again. In particular, they will look at a, at a text like Romans chapter 1, and they will suggest that what Paul is saying there is that sin simply comes with its own punishment. Wrath is being demonstrated or revealed in the necessary consequences of sin. Now, does sin bring its own consequences? Of course. Just ask someone who's struggling with sin. Ask Ask someone who has been victimized by sin. Ask someone who is struggling with their own concept of sin. Ask the Apostle Paul. Ask me. Sin, of course, does come with its own consequences, but those are not the consequences to fear. The consequence to fear is the wrath of God poured out upon all unrighteousness. Interestingly, they also argue that sacrifice has been misunderstood. Reading some of these, and again, their argument is that we have misread the Bible storyline. Their argument is that the animal was not being punished. I couldn't help but think of that when Dr. Sproul was describing the goat. I think the goat would have thought he was being punished. <laughs> the argument here is that it is merely a metaphor, a model. It was a symbol, but nothing objective took place. Furthermore, they argue that we misconstrue the biblical text to believe that God actually required the sacrifice. They argue that in terms of misconstruing the scriptural text in whole or in part, we misconstrue divine punishment. They argue that indeed the result of breaking God's law and covenant brings about alienation first and foremost. We are separated from God. We are in an alienated condition. But when looking at the punishments that the Old Testament and New Testament suggest will follow sin, they suggest that this is, again, the necessary outpouring of this, that divine punishment is simply God allowing the natural world and the natural order He has put into place 
work out its own consequences. Look to particular texts such as Isaiah 53, to the suffering servant. They argue there, interestingly and very revealingly, that the language has to be properly understood so that this is not a suffering for us or on our behalf as a substitute, but is rather an identification with a suffering alongside such that Jesus in the incarnation, answering Anselm's question, cur Deus homo, they answer, God became man in order to identify with us, to suffer along with us, even to the point of the cross, in order to enter into the deepest brokenness of our humanity. By the way, for footnoting that, this is where they become dependent upon figures such as Jürgen Moltmann and, and others. Suggest that we misconstrue prophetic expectation such that Isaiah in these texts was not looking for one who would redeem people from sin, but rather in historical context was looking for one who would free and liberate merely. That more in a terrestrial concern of political oppression. They argue in terms of biblical complaints that we misconstrue the use of the Old Testament and the New Testament, suggesting that we are simply reading back onto the Old Testament categories that we wish to imply in the New Testament, and then when we turn to the New Testament, we are reading this as the fulfillment of the Old Testament text we've already reinterpreted in light of the New Testament expectations that we've imported to the text. Did you follow that? Yeah, that's transparent. In fact, I would argue that this is a part of what reveals the, the impoverishment of this argument. Because who is better equipped? Even before you come to understand the inerrancy and infallibility and inspiration of every single word of Scripture, just in terms of an historical perspective, who's in a better position to understand the Old Testament? The author of the Gospel of Matthew? or a postmodern theology professor with tenure. I'll leave that for your late night cogitation. He suggests that we misread the words of Jesus in terms of his self-understanding. As a matter of fact, Joel Green and Mark Baker argue that in the New Testament we have no direct access to Jesus' own self-understanding of the cross and of his death because, quote, he never wrote anything. That, by the way, is a reminder to us that the denial of penal substitution is never naked. To use Luther's expression about doctrine, it is always connected to other doctrines. They misconstrue, they argue that we misconstrue the language of the New Testament concerning the wrath of God and God's disposition towards sinners. They argue that we misconstrue the necessity of a sacrifice for sin as payment. They suggest that we misconstrue the victory achieved by Christ. They suggest that we minimize the resurrection in a focus upon the cross. They suggest that we miss the fact that the main message, the central message of Jesus is nonviolence. Now, interestingly enough, there are some who, in rejecting a penal substitutionary view of the atonement, simply say, all right, the Bible does teach it but we are not going to believe it. It's simply unacceptable in the 21st century to believe this. I want to say this carefully, but I want to say it honestly. I have far more respect in terms of intellectual integrity for someone who says, yes, I acknowledge that's what the Bible teaches and I'm just going to reject it, rather than someone that takes the text and goes through all these gymnastics in order to try to say, 
it doesn't say what it clearly says. In terms of theological objections, the central objection has to do with the rendering of God made necessary by a penal substitutionary view of the atonement. This is centered on the fact that God's holiness and His righteousness and His justice define His love, even as His love defines His righteousness and His justice and His wrath. The entire concept of God's wrath is completely unthinkable to some theologians and figures here in the 21st century, even as we might argue it has been considered unacceptable by figures, especially heretics of times past. The whole idea of retributive justice and punishment for sin is something that's rejected. Socinus rejected it. Now Steve Chalk rejects it in the sense that he says that God orders us to be peaceful and to resist violence. Therefore, to suggest that he requires violence as punishment for sin makes God hypocritical. Suggests that this is limited essentially to the idea of divine revenge, punishing sin by punishing sinners, or by substitution, punishing sin by punishing the sinless. One of the figures behind all of this is a professor now retired by the name of Walter Wink. As you look at the emerging church literature, you will see this name come up again and again and again. In his book, Engaging the Powers, he suggests that the sole message of the cross is the victory of nonviolence over violence. And therefore, the entire understanding of the atonement has to be redefined so as to take away any necessity of the death of Christ. And Christ must be presented as victim who overcomes by his innocence rather than as the second person of the Trinity, the sinless Son of God who became incarnate in order to humble himself, taking on the form of a man and suffering even unto death. I want you to hear directly some of these theological objections, and just for sake of time, I want to limit them to sections taken from Pinnock and Brow and Green and Baker. Brace yourselves. This is from Unbounded Love, Clark Pinnock, Robert Brow. We have to overcome the rational theory of the atonement based on Latin judicial categories that has dominated Western theology. It demotes the resurrection from its central place and changes the cross from scandal to abstract theory. It makes things sound. Just listen to this, please. You've got to hear this. It makes things sound as if God wanted Jesus to die and predestined Pilate and Caiaphas to make it happen. Their next words, surely not. Jesus is God's beloved Son. The Father and the Son are not divided or in opposition. Listen to how much truth is there. It's filled with truth. Jesus is God's beloved Son. There is no division or opposition between the Father and the Son. But the truth is so corrupted when it is suggested that the implications of the fact that Jesus is God's beloved Son and that the Father and the Son are not divided or in opposition means that God did not want Jesus to die and that God did not predestine Pilate and Caiaphas to make it happen. This is what they say. The cross demonstrates the compassion of God. Through the surrender of Jesus, God seeks out lost sinners, enters into their forsakenness, and brings them into an unbreakable fellowship 
They say this, let's try to set our thinking about the atonement in personal, not legalistic terms. The real issue is a broken relationship, not a breach of contract. Before the cross happened, God loved sinners and wanted to save them. The cross did not purchase love for sinners. It is we, not God, who needed to be changed in attitude. The problem of salvation is our need to be delivered from the power of evil and become people who love God again. That explains the cross? They go on to say, Christ is not appeasing God's wrath. God is not sadistically crucifying his beloved son. We're not talking retribution or criminal proceedings. The cross is a revelation of a compassionate God. Suffering love is the way of salvation for sinners. Jesus takes the pain of divine love on himself in solidarity with all of us. This tells us that God remains faithful to his creatures even though they have abandoned him. He desires that they live and not die. This is how God justifies us. One of the things I hope you will see is that the doctrine of penal substitution and the doctrine of justification by faith alone are inextricably linked. They say this is what tells us that God remains faithful to his creatures even though they have abandoned him. He desires that they live and not die. We must realize that Jesus did not die in order to change God's attitude towards us but to change our attitude toward God. God who took the initiative of reconciling the world does not need reconciling. It is in us that the decisive change is needed. Now, they have to explain exactly what the cross then did. They go on on page 104 of Unbounded Love to say the cross has an objective side too. They even say it's possible to speak of propitiation in non-legal terms, where they mean non-substitutionary terms. They say in love we confront at the cross, not wrath against us. It's love that we confront. What kind of impact would the cross then have upon God? The propitiation of his wrath? No, it is for God an educational experience. I kid you not. They argue that in experiencing suffering through the incarnation, Jesus Christ as a divine human being, God learned how to identify with us. And thus, that is the change that was wrought in God. Green and Baker, in their book, Recovering the Scandal of the Cross, when they finally get to the heart of their opposition, they say this, understanding sin narrowly as an infraction of the laws of God falls short of the biblical account of sin. This is perhaps troublesome enough, but linking this view of sin with a Western penal view of justice also proposes and for some even requires a concept of God that is incongruent with the biblical witness. Now, notice the language there. I hope as you read this literature and as you hear it, you'll begin to understand when, there, when you hear phrases such as incongruent with the biblical witness, please, I beg you, check the Bible. That's what Pierce for Our Transgressions is all about. Okay, let's check. Of course, they say many proponents of penal substitution recognize that God is not foremost an angry God who desires to punish humans, and they attempt to explain that God is foremost a merciful God, a God of love, even though the penal substitutionary model of the atonement would lead one to think otherwise. They go on and say that there are some misconstruals of the doctrine, but the fact is that the doctrine is simply too damaging. They say this, that more sophisticated understandings of substitution, they say, have not proven sufficient to protect people in the pew from the damaging effects of the image of God this model communicates and seems to demand. Tragically, many Christians and former believers, they put in parenthesis, 
still live in fear of a God who seems so intent on punishing and much less willing to forgive than folks we encounter in day-to-day life. You see, there is the root of the theological complaint. God doesn't condone sin. There's a difference between human forgiveness and divine forgiveness, and this is central to understanding the Scripture. We can forgive wrongs done to us, but we cannot atone for them. And first and foremost, these are not offenses against our righteousness, for we have none. To model this is to anthropomorphize deity, to model this on human forgiveness, and to suggest that God, according to the penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement, is less forgiving than our neighbors is a slander against Christ and His work. Very quickly, I must speak of the moral objections. In terms of the moral objections to the cross, we come back to the accusations of such things as divine child abuse. Donald Capps at Princeton Theological Seminary has done a lot of work on this, trying to demonstrate that the problem of child abuse in the society is at least partly, if not very deeply rooted in a substitutionary understanding of the cross such that children are supposed to suffer in redemptive suffering. This is the logic that seems to fit many mentalities in a postmodern world. Many who follow along the lines of these moral objections are following the French philosopher who now teaches and literary scholar that teaches now at Stanford University, Rene Girard, who suggests in his book, The Scapegoat and Things Hidden Since the Foundations of the World and Violence and the Sacred, that human conflict comes down to what he calls victimage. He suggests that crude, primitive religion included sacrifice through what it called the scapegoat mechanism. He suggests that the New Testament subverts what the Old Testament begins to undermine, which is the entire sacrificial system, suggests that what Jesus accomplished was dying as a scapegoat in order to end the scapegoat mechanism, in so doing because he was innocent, as Pilate said, I find no fault in him, as the king and others in the empire would say, I find no fault in him. Jesus dies as the innocent scapegoat recognized to be innocent in order to bring an end to the scapegoat project. You look at that and you say, that sounds so foreign. What in the world could that have to do with contemporary evangelical theology? Trace footnotes. See how often Girard, his works, and the scapegoat mechanism appear, especially among emerging church types who want to reject the penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement. Let's get this clear. Girard says that the Old Testament is wrong, that the sacrificial system was a crude anthropological borrowing from primitive society. He argues that even in the Old Testament you can see Israel grow in moral revulsion against the sacrifice system so that when you have the prophets making very clear statements that God doesn't demand sacrifice, you can see how they're distancing. Steve Chalk in the debate in London in 2005 used the same argument saying that the prophets began to understand the error of the sacrificial system as well. Just consider what that says about the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. Susan Brooks Thistlethwaite, well-known feminist theologian, has suggested a complaint against the substitutionary atonement which you will recognize suggesting, and I just want to read this, this is from Time Magazine, countless women have told me that their priest or minister had advised them, that is, good Christian women, to accept beatings by their husbands as, quote, Christ accepted the cross. 
and used a metaphor or an emphasis on the suffering of Jesus to the exclusion of his teaching in order to support violence. Now, I don't know what you do with this, but I want to ask a journalistic question. Where are these countless women so that we can find their pastors? Let me state pointedly, I don't believe this. Am I saying it could never happen? No. But is the major effect of substitutionary atonement to lead to wife beating? Just consider what this means in terms of its source and its logic. Cultural objections come down, and here Green and Baker are very clear on this, saying it's just irrelevant. Pinnock and Brown suggesting that a new theology has to be compelling, that the old theology held by evangelicals doesn't present a compelling sense of truth anymore to postmodern people. And if we're going to be related to them and relevant, then we've got to come up with something compelling. The word relevant is exactly what Green and Baker are using, are using in suggesting that the whole idea of penal substitution doesn't apply to people who don't think they're sinners in the first place. And they straightforwardly say, you just can't tell people that they're sinners. It's going to be pretty hard to preach if you don't, if you intend to preach the gospel. They suggest also in terms of cultural objection that it's just too individualistic, the penal substitutionary understanding of the gospel. Why do they hate it so? Well, the Bible becomes an embarrassment. You've got God ordering things that are considered, in terms of punishment for sin, completely unacceptable to people in a postmodern society. And so you'll find some of the people who reject the penal substitutionary atonement rejecting the fact that God would order the execution or killing of anyone for any reason in terms of punishment for sin, or that God would require a sacrifice for sin, even in the Old Testament, the sacrifice of an animal, much less in the New Testament, the self-sacrifice of Himself through Christ and His substitutionary atonement. You see how they reject an understanding of God. They reject His wrath. They reject His holiness in the sense of requiring a punishment for sin, His righteousness and His justice. They reject, in terms of humanity, the imputation of Adam's sin to us and the necessity through a substitutionary atonement of the grace of God demonstrated in the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the elect. They reject it on the basis of salvation. They want to argue that it has more to do with enlightenment, moral improvement, a surrendering of claims to power, and a breaking of the empire system in terms of political power and the establishment of the kingdom of God over against earthly kingdoms. I want to suggest to you that one of the most important things you need to understand is that with the rejection of the penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement, you've really undercut a major dimension of the exclusivity of the gospel. Because if all that is required is a change in us and some symbol or act in order to prove to us that God is actually merciful, if it's not about God's righteousness and justice and requiring a penalty for sin, the only adequate penalty being Jesus the Christ, then why not some other belief system or some other religion being a way to at least signal to us that we must change our disposition to God? Then again, don't be surprised. May the same people make the same arguments on the same doctrines. Thus, justification by faith alone is undercut by a denial of the penal substitutionary understanding of the atonement. Let me footnote that. Steve Holmes at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, brilliant article on that. It undercuts the church. and undercuts eschatology because there is no hell you will find, or at least hell in terms of the just punishment of unrepentant sinners by God with His wrath outpoured upon all unrighteousness. 
Sally Brown in a book, Crosstalk, says the problem for us who reject the substitutionary atonement is that it keeps rearing its head over and over again because you get Christians together, they'll find a way to sing it. <laughs> the pastoral implications of this very quickly. First, the cross is central to Christian preaching. The gospel and the concept of substitution is central to understanding the cross. Second, there's always more to the cross than any one conceptual framework can bear. The New Testament very clearly articulates this but it is never less than its central message of substitution. Third, there is no way to modify the gospel without repudiating the gospel. I didn't say there's no way to modify our presentation of the gospel. I said there's no way to modify the gospel without repudiating the gospel. Fourth, there's no way to present the gospel without speaking directly of our sin and God's gracious provision through Christ. Full satisfaction of God's justice. Fifth, a therapeutic age demands a therapeutic gospel, which means that we really are the problem when we do not want to be and will gladly grab and clasp any straw that argues that we are victims rather than perpetrators of the great crime. Sixth, penal substitution is the only adequate biblical explanation for how God is both holy and righteous, is both just and merciful, as Romans 3 makes clear, is both just and the justifier. Seventh, we must consider carefully legitimate criticisms of any expression of doctrine. And in this light, finally, I want to argue that at times we have argued for an overly individualistic understanding of the atonement. It's never less than that, but let's remember it's about God's big purpose to bring glory to His name through the creation of a people purchased for His Son by His Son as the bride, not merely a person, but people. Eighth and last, sinners desperately need to hear the great truth of the gospel and be saved from the wrath to come. God's redeemed people must exult and rest in the sure confidence that God will indeed bring all things to completion on that day, His perfect satisfaction demonstrated on the day of the Lord as it was demonstrated on the cross, and we must live in hope, even as we pray, even so, Lord, come quickly. In his memoir, When a Crocodile Eats the Sun, Peter Godwin writes of growing up in South Africa, and he tells the story of how many Westerners, Europeans, and for that matter, Americans, in terms of Western culture, would come to Africa and miss the obvious. He tells the story of Prince Philip at a state dinner in South Africa. Waiter leans over, the African waiter, and asks Prince Philip, he says, would you like the beef or the duck? Prince Philip says, tell me about the duck. The waiter looks at him a moment and says, it's like a chicken, but it swims. We can understand how human beings can so easily miss the obvious. We dare not miss the obvious. We, we dare not miss what is central. Tell me about the gospel. Let's answer.
he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of what you accomplished for us through Christ on the cross. We pray above all things, not only to be grateful, but faithful in our stewardship of this great truth. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>